This Ends at Prom is a critical analysis show and is being produced in solidarity with the WGA and SAG after strikes. The podcast you're about to hear was produced during the strikes, and without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, the movie being reviewed here wouldn't exist. For more information, feel free to visit the Freelance Solidarity Project at freelancesolidarity.org. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Girl, I wanna be your goddamn idol And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard For the same motherfucking title But I How usually when we cover animated films on the show, we're usually talking about lighthearted adventure films that are fun for the whole family. That's not this movie. No, I mean, arguably the animated films that we have done have skewed down. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Kiki's Delivery Service or The Last Unicorn, maybe mm-hmm. a little below the average teenage Absolutely. This is not. No, 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 no. This, this, this is one of those ones where we're really flexing uh, the, the the durability of the teen genre, where it's like, oh, it's absolutely about teens. Is it specifically for teens? No. No, 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 no. No, it is not. So I am just going to let all of you at home listening know, because we do know that sometimes people will listen to the episodes having not seen the film, uh, trigger and content warning for... Bad things that happen in horror movies, uh, bad things that happen to women, bad things that happen to everyone. Bad, 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 bad. <laughs> Generally, you're going to get flagged on like the uh, rated like R for sexual content, violence, like whatever, one of those things. Weirdly enough, you could flag it for probably everything but like drug and alcohol use. Yeah, you know, there's like a little bit of smoking, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> smoking gets its own flag on those things. That's very smoking. true. That's very, very true. Um, Tobacco use. This week, we are talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, the film that Harmony and I declared to be the best uh, non-kid-friendly animated film ever made when we were on screen drafts. That's two weeks in a row we are plugging screen drafts. I know. Uh, I also talked about this as an art house horror film on the podcast Bloodhouse. Um, so this is, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this movie, but it's time for us to finally talk about it from the teen angle. And we're talking about Satoshi Khan's Perfect Blue. Indeed a perfect film. Indeed, a perfect film. There is literally nothing about this movie I would change, even though I know that Satoshi Khan himself, before he passed, tragically, he did pass away from pancreatic cancer. Um, so he was not around to see the way that the world has embraced this film, mm-hmm. which 
will forever be a bummer to me because I think he'd be delighted to know how many people love this movie and how important it has become. This one in particular. Yeah, like Tokyo Godfather is also great. Paprika also great. Tokyo Godfather is one of my favorite Christmas movies. Yeah. But like this is so much more decidedly dark than his other movies. Yeah, it really is. It's like, it's wild. Um, Because originally this was supposed to be a direct-to-video feature. This was not meant to go theatrical. And... At the time in Japan, movies like this like kind of didn't exist for wide releases. Like you would get graphic stuff, but it was very, very niche. It was kind of underground. And this We got is, more of that in the 2000s. Yeah. So he was breaking new ground with this movie and kind of revolutionizing what was possible for wide release anime. And that's really, really cool. While also being like scathingly critical of the entertainment industry. (laughs) It is not subtle (laughs) in the slightest. Um, But this movie has gone on to influence countless creators, most notably Darren Aronofsky, which we'll get into that when we talk about context. (sighs) That is my one-sided feud. The way that you have the one-sided feud with Eddie Redmayne, mine's with Darren Aronofsky. Oh, trust me. Like I I am, I'm fully on your team with this one because (laughs) I bring, it is my favorite thing to bring up. How Aronofsky's a fucking hack at work. God. <laughs> and how he owes his entire career to this movie and he's not ever going to reach it. Yeah, for real. Um, so if by chance you have not seen Perfect Blue, here is your synopsis that, I'll be real, doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what's going on in this movie. But the synopsis is... A pop singer gives up her career to become an actress, but she slowly goes insane when she starts being stalked by an obsessed fan and what seems to be a ghost of her past. That is a very gentle way of describing what this movie is. Yes, this is a very nice back-of-the-box sort of descriptor because it's not giving away how intense it is. It's not giving away what a psychological mind trip this is. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's plenty to be surprised by when you actually sit down and watch it. Um, If this is a movie you have not seen, uh, know that that makes a lot of sense because for a very long time, this was really hard to find. Mm -hmm. It was not super accessible in the West. Um, It would have like little bursts where like suddenly it would be like re-released in theaters or get like a little pressing and people would be psyched about it. But it's only been in the last like, two years or so that it's been made available on streaming. And so now a lot of people are discovering it for the first time. I know that Joe Bob Briggs did uh, an episode of the last drive in where he showed it because it was available on shutter. And that was a huge introduction for a lot of horror fans, which I have my feelings about Joe Bob Briggs, but that was an unquestionably awesome move for him to be like, here's my giant platform. You're watching anime. Well, yes, especially because Shudder does currently still have it. That's where we rewatched it for you know today's episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- there are horror animated films, mm-hmm. but significantly fewer of them. Mm-hmm. So it's notable on that alone. Mm hmm. But both you and I saw this long before, you know, it got its more recent reclamation or or, or a new platform. We're we're doing this episode specifically because, like, it got re-released into theaters for a 25th anniversary again. Mm -hmm. But, BJ, where did you first find this movie and watch it? Oh, this was a college watch. Of course it Um, was. This was 
during my peak, like learning about film and being insufferable era, um, where it played for the like movie club at my university because there was mm-hmm. a film minor, so then they would do like a movie club and show things. Sure. And this came up on like the alternative anime night. I don't remember what else was on there, but it was like counter programming to a Miyazaki night that we had done, which at the that time period, Miyazaki was becoming like much more well known in the West and at the same time it wasn't as mainstream yet so you could still kind of have like cool film person cred oh, by yeah. being like um i really like this movie called princess mononoke you're watching disney okay like I, I think spirited away is when we started to like very slowly become yeah. aware of it in the west uh i think howl's moving castle and ponyo are very much where it was solidified in the west mm-hmm. i agree um so there was that and then the counter programming was this and I don't remember what the other one was because this is I watched it and I was just so floored by it that I'm like I'm, this is my favorite thing in the world and I can't mm-hmm. think of anything else because this is taking up too much space in my brain. But what I am far more interested in is learning how you living in middle of nowhere Ohio discovered perfect blue. I have taste Okay, well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Before I rented something and it stayed out of the library for way too long and I racked up a bill that I just didn't feel like paying, I would go to the library occasionally. And as far as like things that were relevant to my interest were concerned, it was small. However, there was indeed a a book that I remember checking out several times. Mm -hmm. And it was like. I don't know if it was like a guide to anime or like 100 essential animes or something like that, Mm -hmm. but it was some shit like that. And uh, Perfect Blue was in there. Mm -hmm. So that would place this as sometime around probably 10 years old. Okay. So that would, that, that, that tracks old enough that I would have gone to the library to get this book, but like not so old that I'm still not, that I'm not going to the library anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, it was in very, very high regard. And I was like, well, I got to watch this because the image that you always see is the image of it, which is from the end where it's like, she turns around, she's got blood on her face and it's like very feminine, but like the juxtaposition of like super, super girly girl, but like Mondo blood. Yeah. Wearing like her Japanese idol pop star outfit with blood on her face. It's the red one, not the pink one, but like, that's okay. Um, like that, that juxtaposition is really, uh, jarring to see when you've watched anime, mm-hmm. but you haven't watched that kind of anime. This, this is also where I learned about, uh, Princess Mononoke, which was my first Ghibli movie and I rented it from the library. Oh, look at that. So how about that? But, uh, yes, it wasn't until a few years later when I illegally downloaded it on LimeWire <laughs> that I finally watched it. <laughs> look. Pirates as preservationists is something that I will always get behind. Stealing from independent creators, not so much. It was a different time. Exactly. It, it, it was like, you know, 2004 or whatever. Getting anime as an expensive hobby. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. It was uh, n- not not nearly as accessible in the West as it is now. I'm where... going to pay $36 for a DVD that has two episodes on it. <laughs> and we did. People did that. That mm-hmm. was a very common occurrence. <laughs> gonna go to to Suncoast or whatever, so or if I'm or if I'm lucky, then I can go ahead and get a used copy of Fruits Baskets or something from <laughs> Babbage's. That's why so many kids who were really in anime, we were all broke all the time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it was so it was an expensive hobby to have as a teenager. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so Perfect Blue is the directorial debut of Satoshi Kon, who would go on to make, in my opinion, no misses. Like, Mm -hmm. Satoshi Kon is one of those filmmakers who never made anything short of brilliant, um, but this is his first, and 
I cannot believe that this gets to be the first. That's mm-hmm. wild to me. Um, it is based on a book. The book is nowhere near this dark. Um, Satoshi Khan read that and was like, I like this idea. This has good bones. I'm going to put some real bloody meat on this skeleton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's uh, sort of how this came to be. But in terms of context, looking at what was going on in the teen sphere at the time is not it's moot. It, yeah, it's a moot point with this, especially because so many people are coming to this movie at different time periods. So looking at it as like, how did this affect teen culture? That doesn't really exist, especially not in the West. So what context are you bringing to the table this week for this movie? Oh, I I did some reading. I, mm-hmm. I watched some, some video essays. Mm-hmm. I learned about Japanese idols. So that's what we're going to be talking about because it's really important to understand how how this movie kind of comes to be in what it's criticizing. I love that you want to talk about Japanese idols because I think especially in the West, there is a disconnect because so many people are like, oh, I understand idols. They're like pop stars or they're like industry plant pop stars. Nope. But it is so much more than that. So lay it on me and everyone at home. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that change based on specific groups and also time periods, but in a nutshell, uh, pop idols are typically very young. Um, mm-hmm. They're most commonly girls, though in since the 2000s, boy pop idol groups have become more popular. But in their starting time, they were uh, teen girls who were very young and put into very predatory contracts where um, if for some reason they didn't fulfill their contracts, they could just become like, Forced to d- do sex work because mm-hmm. that was just a thing in these horrible, horrible contracts that these young girls were put into. Well, because um, a lot of times what it was is like they would be fined exorbitant amount of money, like like famous person amounts of money. But if you could no longer be a pop idol, you couldn't afford to pay those debts off. And because you're a pop idol, you also now can't have like a regular job. I mean, also just in terms of like music as a whole, generally you take an advance when you go ahead and record music, especially, you know, this is very obviously the American recording industry, but I imagine it's probably very similar to Japan where you take an advance and you have to pay that advance back. And if you can't, guess what? You're going to have to pay that advance back. Yeah. So there's there's a lot that goes into it. Once once you get to the 70s, you, you start to see a little bit more uh, mainstream, like a couple a couple will bubble to the surface and go and transcend like pop idol stardom and just become straight up stars. Mm-hmm. Once you get to the 80s, that is considered the golden age of of pop idols mm-hmm. and pop idol groups. Um, so like Menudo, where it's like you have all these boys mm-hmm. and they are very replaceable. And they rotate them out whenever their voices change. Whenever they get a little too old and grow facial hair and they replace them. Mm-hmm. Guess what? That but there's like hundreds of them. Yeah. There's hundreds of menudos. <laughs> so that that's kind of the landscape you're looking at in like a North American comparison. Yeah. And um, what you start to see then is uh, an emphasis on like lavish living. Like that's always been a thing, but now we have really solidified the formula. So you get you you get these young girls who are going on like vacations and living in like boutique houses and using only the finest products and they are have these like idealized fantasized lives. Mm-hmm. The golden age of pop idol starts to wind down. It stops being mainstream popular mm-hmm. and becomes niche popular. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really only op- uh, it's really only popular with grown men, mm-hmm. either in their twenties or older. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a term that we use in America quite lovingly called otaku, and it's been a I, it's probably still a loving term in certain circles. Like people will self identify as a it was a here. badge of honor in the 2000s. I remember for someone who was like, yeah, I love anime. I'm such a like an otaku. Mm-hmm. Otaku is not a term of endearment in Japan. Yeah, it is a derogatory. Yeah, it is an insult. They are telling you you're a creepy fucking weirdo. You're you're a loser who likes a lot of things that are pretty immature and you don't go outside enough. Yeah, like those are the people <laughs> in Japan. If you're called an otaku, that's basically them being like touch grass, more or less. <laughs> so, um, come the '90s, you start to change the the concept of what a pop idol is and. That will play into this movie specifically with the version of the pop idol they have here, mm-hmm. where you phase out the, um, the 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 fantasy aspect of it. Mm-hmm. No longer are they wearing like magical girl outfits or like high fashion glamour or whatever. They're wearing casual clothes. Mm-hmm. They're casual. They're just like you. They're relatable. Yeah. You know, they're they're girl feasible. Next door. You could go ahead and like meet this girl. Maybe you she's can not have like a handshake. Exactly. Like this. This is someone who's like so much more like tangible. That's right, young men. Become obsessed with them. Mm-hmm. Have their pictures all over your rooms. We encourage you to keep this subculture alive by becoming crazed about it. Mm-hmm. We want you to bankrupt yourself because you become obsessive with it, and we will encourage it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how we end up here with Perfect Blue. And then, obviously, once we get to the 2000s, it goes off into a, a further evolution of what that means, and that's its own different different can of worms, but... Yes, where we're talking about here with Perfect Blue, pop idols are on a severe downturn. Mm-hmm. In fact, the uh, the group they're in, Cham, not exactly a, uh, it's a kind of an archaic version of a pop idol. Mm-hmm. So I think that ties in with like how the, uh, I don't know what her role in this, in this group is, Rumi. Mm-hmm. Like I think she's like a manager of some kind. Yeah, yeah. She used to be a pop idol, and this is much more in line with her because she's a bit older. Mm-hmm. So... She has a, she has a bit of a of a dated perspective on what a pop idol is, and it's all very important for how this movie works. Absolutely, and this movie is also playing with this idea of like the limited growth that you have after a pop idol, because we see Rumi, who is this like person in a managerial position who used to be a pop idol. This is sort of like how if you're an Olympian, you then become a coach. Like you end mm-hmm. up staying in this world. Do what you know. You do what you know because you have a very specific skill set. And then you have Mima, who's our lead, who we're going to follow throughout this. And Mima is a pop idol who is feeling like, okay, this is winding down. I need to I'm pivot. I'm stifled. I'm stifled. I no. need to to do something else. I mean, you even see that with those shows they have at the very start of the movie where it's like only full grown men coming to them and they're not even like half selling out. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're getting heckled by people going like, this is bogus. Let's throw shit at you. And the thing too is like their choreography is so seamless that they're able to dodge things being thrown it's at them. Slick. Which you know they're used to this. Oh, this is not a new thing for them. This is part of the job. Um, but yes, she makes the pivot into acting, which is something that, you know, we even, like the closest thing that I would say, honestly, in the West to kind of the idol sort of form is not Menudo, even though that I think is the easiest form. It's the Disney machine. Yes. It's it's the the, the Miley Cyruses and the Selena Gomez's of, of that world. Um, and I am also going to do a, a small plug. Uh, do you remember Alison Stoner? Not by name, I don't, but okay. I'm notoriously bad with names. Okay, so yeah, probably by name, you don't know who this person is, but you've 
I guarantee you've seen at least something that they're in. Okay. So they were one of the hosts on the Disney Channel's Mike's Super Short Show. Mike's Super Short Show. Um, the they, were, yeah. <laughs> they were in the Cheaper by the Dozen movies, yeah. the Step Up movies. Uh, they voiced Isabella on Phineas and Ferb. What you doing? I got nothing. Okay, cool. So you know them as the the, the little kid who does all the dances in the Missy Elliott videos. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, now I know who we're talking about here purely because when Missy reemerged, everyone Allison was, came back. Everyone yeah. was freaking out because they're like, oh my God, they look so gay. Allison's, well, so fun fact Allison Stoner is queer non binary. Um, okay. So, yes. Um, everyone, try, everyone was very stoked about that. Well, because they can still dance their fucking ass off. Yeah, it was so, cool. like, that's always fun to see. Uh, but yeah, fun, fun, not so fun fact about that is that Allison Stoner had gotten a, a job, I think, on a TV show. And um, when they came out as queer non-binary, suddenly that job didn't exist anymore. Weird how that happens. So many things like that happen to Alexis Arquette. This, uh-huh. is, this is not unheard of. Yeah. So the reason that I bring them up is because Alison Stoner recently launched a video series on YouTube. It's also a podcast called Dear Hollywood. And it is specifically looking at the ways that the Hollywood machine kind of destroys child actors, sets them up for failure, um, screws their finances, how so many adults end up with like access to these children's bodies by way of like, well, this is a thing we have to do for, you know, the show to work, like customers and whatever, whatever. And it is really harrowing. So if anybody seeks this podcast show out, I recommend it because it's genuinely very, very good. It can be very triggering. So keep that in mind. Um, but a lot of the stuff that Allison talks about on this show is very eerily similar to the way that idols are treated across the globe. I mean, speaking of all of this, I believe it's about the Joby just passed the one year anniversary of I'm glad my mom is dead. Yeah. Jeanette McCurdy's book. Um, very similar, S- similar vibes. Yes. Similar vibes yeah, here. Yeah. Pre- predatory towards young women. Yes. Yes. Um, but you see so many of these like young stars pivot into other careers in the entertainment industry because one, they're, they're naturally talented and creative people mm-hmm. Two, They have kind of all been set up. Like you have to, somewhat stay in this world because it's not like you're going to randomly become, you know, like a receptionist somewhere. I mean, like it's a hard pivot to go and like yeah. learn a vocation and be like, Oh man, what if Demi Lovato became an electrician? Right. Like, like y- you can do that. It's just not like the most obvious thing to be doing. Exactly. Which There's is not a clear path there, which is why they, there are always these lists that are like, can you believe that the kid from Charlie and the chocolate factory became a farmer? And can it's you believe like, chunk from the Goonies is a lawyer. He's also an entertainment lawyer, like yeah. which makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so that's what we're seeing with Mima in this movie is she's like, I got to pivot to something. I got to shake off this sort of image that I have. I'm going to become a serious actor. I'm going to do way more extreme sort of things because mm-hmm. as a pop star, she's doing this very like girly, girly type stuff. She's, she's got to shake a bad image. She's got to shake that. We, she, she's got to shake that image. We've and seen that with every Disney kid. Exactly. Most, most famously, probably Miley. Miley's the most obvious one, but yeah. they've all done it. Miley, Britney, all of them. I mean, um, even before that though, like think of Macaulay Culkin going like, I'm going to do Party Monster and then Saved. Yeah. Yeah, like this the is, opposite of Kevin McAllister. Yeah, this is it's pretty common stuff that happens, and that is also the world that Perfect Blue is playing into. But before we dive in any deeper, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Oh. 
Hello, prom party. Yes, it is BJ. I am back to do the morning announcements for this month. The first one is the usual. If you would like to support This Ends at Prom, you can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. We have tiers that start as low as $1 and ones that go all the way up to $10. If you want to give us more, that's cool too. And this month on the Patreon, we've got some really cool stuff for you. As part of our musical milestones, we're talking about Taylor Swift's movie. There's just too much to say, and people have been underestimating teen girl audiences for too long, so we're going to talk about it. You don't have to be a Swifty to enjoy it, because it's going to be a very fun discussion, talking about the tech side of things, as well as how Taylor Swift screwed over the Hollywood system, which, given the circumstances of the strikes right now, we are a huge fan of anybody willing to screw over the studio systems. And as far as our Sadie Hawkins episodes are concerned, it's September. We're going back to school. So we're going to talk about two college boy classics, Van Wilder and Animal House. Ugh, let's see how that goes. In addition to that, we are still on our trek through TV Homecoming, going through the first and only season of My So-Called Life. And as always, there is the monthly playlist from Harmony. It's always good stuff. We love how excited you all have been in sharing with us the bands that you like that you've heard because of the show. If you are unable to support the show financially at this time, we totally understand it. We are in a recession right now. The only thing that we ask is that you give us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to this show and maybe share us with a friend. And this month, we also want to shout out a brand new book we think some of you out there might really like just in time for spooky season. The Scary Movie Writer's Guide from Seth Sherwood, he's our guest on Hellfest, is a 100-plus page step-by-step -step workbook that guides you to plan, plot, and write your own horror screenplay. It takes you through the entire process, starting with generating ideas, forming work habits, all the way through the process of making a detailed outline. Cook up plots, find themes, play with subgenres, decide on point of view and style, cook up characters and monsters. I mean, it's a workbook for a reason. But if you are interested in checking out this book, you can get it at www.scarywriter.com. Again, that is www.scarywriter.com. Dot com. Thank you so much for listening, and back to the movie. Alrighty, so as we previously mentioned, this movie is pretty much centered entirely around a pop idol named Mima. She is voiced by Junko Iwao, and Mima as a character, how do you feel about her? I sympathize greatly for her, mm -hmm. but the thing is, I don't know who she is. Mm -hmm. I don't think she knows who she is. Like, the tie is very strongly into the plot. But like, if you're not a pop idol, you're an actor. If you're not an actor, mm -hmm. what are you? Mm -hmm. mm. yeah. You have fish. You have a modest apartment. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't know what she likes. We don't know what her dreams actually are. Like, is her dream actually to be an actor? Or is her dream shaking off being a pop idol or is this the dream that she's just accepted is her only route because she's been a pop idol mm -hmm. these are all things that we don't know about her as a character and i find that to be really fascinating because whenever movies are about like pop stars or whoever there's always this like side plot of like who are they really like even hannah montana it's like there's there's hannah montana and then there's, there's miley secret. stewart like they're two different people is her last name stewart in the show yes okay things <laughs> i don't know um yeah so there, that's usually something that's prioritized is it like i just want like people to know the real me like mm -hmm. 
but that doesn't exist here. This movie is very much about like, what are we projecting onto these pop idols? What are they internalizing as well? And how are they then taking what they've internalized and like making it work? Mm-hmm. And that is so brilliant and so hard to do. <laughs> oh yeah. Like there are so many things about this movie that I love and I think are masterful. Um, I remember quite distinctly, there was, there was a couple couple kids that I remember, you know, being 12 years old or whatever and watching this movie either because I was like, this movie's awesome. And I was telling them to watch it or they just figured it out because they were weebs. But I remember them saying like, oh yeah, like it's really good. But like, it kind of like becomes hard to follow and doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, it makes perfect fucking sense. Mm -hmm. You're just 12. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be disoriented in like the back third of this movie. Mm -hmm. That's the point. Yeah. And it's it's so good, dude. <laughs> like it's so fucking good. And like it's one of the benefits of this being animated mm-hmm. is you can do like some cuts and some 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 magic that wouldn't work live action. Absolutely. This But it's like subtle about it. It's not like they're like rubber hose animation. It's not like, well, they could never move like that. Like, no, they move like people. Mm-hmm. It's how reality is presented. Yes. This movie was the first one that I highlighted in my animation celebration column that I do at Slash Film whenever I see a piece of feature animation that is not for kids because it's specifically an animation column about animation that is geared towards adult audiences. Mm -hmm. And in that, I talked about this animation and like the world building that is done where there is so much quote unquote movie magic in this movie because the only limitations are Satoshi Khan's imagination. Mm -hmm. You are not beholden to like what is possible to make practically with a set or Mm -hmm. what is possible to make practically even with CGI or even having to take into consideration, well, which take has the best performance from the actor? Mm -hmm. There are so many moving parts that happen with a movie. That's why it's a miracle whenever any movie is made, especially if it's good. Mm -hmm. Whereas with something like Perfect Blue, because it's animated, every single choice is intentional. Oh, it's deliberate. And it's all deliberate. There's no happy accidents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, There's no happy accidents. I I could count on one hand the times that animation has happy accidents. Like in Dexter's Lab, when they go to like, what is it? Chubby Cheezer's restaurant and Mm -hmm. everyone flies into the sky on accident. Yes. That's a happy accident because the people are supposed to be celebrating, but the overseas animators are like, oh, they're flying like Superman. And just for no reason, the people just come flying (laughs) and it's hilarious. Um, That's a happy accident. But in general, when it comes to animation, because you have to do every frame, especially back then, mm-hmm. so painstakingly and so deliberately, it has like you thought about it for weeks. Mm-hmm. It's it's really remarkable stuff, and that's why the visuals are so much more impressive because he had to think of that beforehand. Like he had to plot all of this out. And well, it's th- like storyboarded in a way where it's like it's got really realistic cuts, mm-hmm. and I think that that really helps one to extend it outside of your typical anime um, fan. So I don't know if this is still a very common thing, but for a long time, whenever someone was trying to introduce uh, people who don't watch anime to anime, they would always start with Cowboy Bebop because, you know, I'm old, so it's the best anime (laughs) ever made. But like, it's also not a good introduction to anime because it's so not typical for the genre. Right. Um, So I'm of two minds with Perfect Blue because it's kind of like that where if you show someone like this, you can't expect this to be what you're going to get more of. Because there's not a lot of anime bullshit in this movie. There's not. And I think that's really, really good, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but not indicative of its particular medium. Um, 
But at the same time, it can be like a good gateway to, to like Japanese animation because a lot of things about it are very practical and they're really smart and could easily be done in live action. Like there's a lot of really good cuts. Mm-hmm. Like where someone opens the door and then the door opens and it cuts and it's like, oh, we're in a different location. Yeah, that's very cinematic. Yes. You open, you know, somebody wakes up and it's like, oh, hey, this, that scene ends. Now we're in a new location. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole lot of that and it's very practical mm-hmm. and it works very, very well for like someone who has an understanding of cinema outside of animation. And some of these scenes, not to jump around too much, are meticulously paced in a way that a live action horror movie would be paced. Mm -hmm. There's one moment in particular in a parking garage with an elevator that is one of the most like horrifying things I've ever seen. After the boombox? Yeah, there's a boombox and like you're trying to figure out where the sound is coming from and when you finally do look, it's like a happy pop idol song playing somewhere in the distance. Yes. And there's just like there's use of red carpeting in the in the elevator. You don't it's just one of those scenes that plays with your imagination because you don't actually see the murder happen. At this point Uh, we haven't seen like any murders. Yeah. You just get we're just kind of aware that there's something going on. Yes. You just get the end result of like brutality after the fact but mm-hmm. it is it is breathtaking how well it is paced and and shown because it it, it rivals any live action horror movie it's mm-hmm. unbelievable yep um but going back to mima so like you said we don't really know who she really is she doesn't really know who she really is i mean she's whoever the fans want her to be and speaking of that there are people in this movie that think they know who she is based on what they've consumed through the media and operate as if that is their reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And the big one for that is a character named Me-Mania. Yes, because he does not have a name other than his screen name. He does have a name, but it's like never used. It's like like Yuchida is his name. Is that his name? Okay. Yeah, but it's Me-Mania, which... Look, stand culture names are ridiculous. The fact that she's Me-Ma and he's Me-Mania, kind of great. Because it's like I, me, mania. I'm. Y- me, you mania's get it. running wild, mean gene. <laughs> um, the one thing I will say about this character that I want to get get out at the top um, is that there are a couple of characters that are the way that they are illustrated uh, with the um, wide apart eyes. Yeah. So yes. to Rumi and Mimania are both illustrated with their eyes really far apart. Um, Mimania's face does have facial differences and the implication is supposed to be like this person is creepy and there is a lot to be said about the way that film has consistently portrayed people with facial differences as Mm -hmm. violent or crazed or dangerous. Mm -hmm. That is a fucking problem for sure. What I will say, and this is not to like give a defense or give a pass or whatever, is that in the animated medium, a lot of times people are working with shorthand and making somebody physically look different, like immediately at the surface, is a very fast way to get that point across. It's not sensitive and it's not the most empathetic. I mean, this movie is not the most empathetic. It's not. This movie is is awful. But like, the, you, you can tell from Me Mania just by seeing him in general. 
he's a creepy guy. Right. His, His face just adds to it. Right. So this movie is not meant to paint like, well, if somebody has a facial difference, then that means that they're like dangerous. It's like this guy is dangerous and he also happens to have a facial difference. So it's easy for you to pick him out of a crowd. I've also seen some people make some claims that I'm not I'm not going to say they're wrong. I'm just not going to say I necessarily agree with it that characters like uh, Mimania is like, oh, he might have Down syndrome or he might be on the spectrum because of the way his face is illustrated. Yeah. And, and that's just a whole other set of things. Yeah, that gets into a really weird can of worms because then you're also implicating that like only people who look this way would have you know, X, Y, and Z neurodivergency about something. Right. Like you're, you're, this is why it gets really dangerous to try to diagnose fictional characters because we don't know. And that's super harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, there, there are, there are the, uh, the obsessiveness of fans of this is very, very common. Yes. Um, particularly when things get niche, like, Funnily enough, um, I made a reference to to Mean Gene and, and Mania's Running Wild earlier, but pro wrestling is very much a big part of our lives. Obviously, anybody who's ever listened to the podcast can can glean that. Mm-hmm. The more niche and specific I think you get with your fandoms, um, whether that be like YouTubers, Twitch streamers, uh, OnlyFans, professional wrestlers, pop idols, something where it is far enough into the mainstream and is very, very specific. Mm-hmm. There is a closeness fans have with the people that they are interested in. Mm-hmm. And I think that that helps sort of foster an obsessive nature. Um, the worst wrestling fans are the worst fans of anything in the world. Mm-hmm. And they are not too far off from characters like this. Like, you wrote, you wrote a movie. I did. You wrote a movie called Powerbomb. I did. It's and about, It's about Mr. Wes Allen. Uh, Wes Allen from our last American Virgin episode. And, and the father of Roxy The father and of Cash. Roxy and Cash and the uh, the co-host of the Why Did We Ever Meet podcast. There's With your, Ashley. There, there's your plug, y'all. Yeah. So um, Wes plays an obsessive wrestling fan who mm-hmm. kidnaps Son of Havoc Matt Cross. Mm-hmm. You know, party dude Matt Cross. <laughs> yeah. Kidnaps him because he's going to retire and he doesn't want his favorite wrestler to retire. So he keeps him chained in his basement. Mm-hmm. And... People reviewed your movie saying, I don't know if I believe this. This is a little far-fetched from me. And then lo and behold, like within the last couple of years, there was absolutely a female wrestler named Sonia Deville who had a man sneak into her house with like duct tape and zip ties and intended on kidnapping her. Yes. So um, it's a thing that happens sometimes and it's fucking scary. And unfortunately, in 2016, there was a Japanese pop idol who had been threatened online by a fan mm-hmm. and she ignored him because that's the thing. Everybody always says like, just, just ignore, ignore him. him. Just the, ignore them. Internet to serious the, business. The internet's not real. Just ignore them. Well, she did ignore him. And then he stabbed her 34 fucking times. Fortunately, she survived. Yes. That dude is hella in jail, uh-huh. thankfully. But yeah, she, she can no longer be a pop idol anymore. Now she has severe PTSD. Like that's awful. Like that's horrible. But this is what happens when people get so obsessive. And what's fascinating is like when I was like, you know, oh, the Disney machine is probably the closest thing that we have to like pop idols. No, I do think it's wrestling actually. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I think it's wrestling is because wrestling also deals with persona mm-hmm. the same way that pop idols deal with persona. There's where also a matter of marketing yourself. There's, 
yourself. You market and yourself. Social media, people can just get up in there and say comments and talk like they know you and stuff. Right, but you're presenting a character to the world of mm-hmm. like like these pop idols, similarly to like boy bands or whatever. It's be, it'll be like, oh well, Justin Timberlake's favorite pizza is Hawaiian, and then like somebody oh, wow. will like bring him a Hawaiian pizza, and he's like, I don't actually eat this, and they're yeah. like, but J14 Magazine said it's your favorite, and mm-hmm. it's like. That was someone else. I did not come up with that. That's yeah, not me. That, that's just hearsay. Right. That's just someone saying that, like, oh, it's such a quirky trade. He likes he likes pineapple and ham. Right. Like, wow. th- like, but that's a thing that happens with like yes. pop idols. It's a thing that happens with wrestling. So what ends up happening is like people who are fans think that they know who these people are, and it's like, oh, I know this guy. I know what you well, like. I know what you act like. Especially, and it's a character. When it comes to wrestling, people will be really, really defensive of wrestlers who are bad people because they're like, that's my hero, and I'm like. You can go ahead and, like, for me, I love Macho Man Randy Savage. Randy Poffo beat his wife. Uh, Chris Jericho is my was my favorite wrestler of all time for very, very many years. Chris Jericho's wife might have been at the Capitol. And he gives off wicked libertarian energy and seems terrible. Yeah, there, I can't even open that can let's, of worms. Let's not do it's that. It's too much. Yes. But, still, but, but like, you, you have yeah. to separate the person from the persona as a fan of things, and a lot of people don't do that. It's, and, and staying culture is getting particularly toxic. One thing that I decided not to go into because it was a completely larger picture and layer to this whole thing is when it comes to pop idols, the reason it changed after the 90s was the advent of the internet. Yeah. That is how everything changed and how it got popular again. Mm -hmm. And we see that that is a very vital part of this movie. You're totally right because looking at Me Mania, part of why he can't let go of what's going on with Mima is because he is visiting a website called Mima's Room. It goes back and forth throughout the movie whether he's the one that's in charge of the website and updating you're, it. You're impl- it's implied that he is the one running it the whole time, mm-hmm. especially because either maybe he's there, maybe he's not, but Mima seeing him everywhere, mm-hmm. and maybe she's just paranoid. She has every reason to be paranoid. So that's, Again, it's the mind-bending mind thing of this movie. Yeah, so unsure. when we're talking about characters in this movie, some of them might exist, some of them might not. It might have been a dream. It might have been a hallucination. Um, there's a whole lot of things up in the air. I don't know. It might be a physical manifestation of her own anxiety about having stands. Like, yes. we, like it's not super clear, which is why this movie is so brilliant. It's so so fucking take cool. everything that we say with a, a grain of salt, because a lot of the characters in this are representative and we're, not tangible. We're speaking with a version of reality. Correct. So it's implied through most of the movie that he is absolutely the one like running like a role playing blog. But you see people do all the time. There are Fan so many pages, Twitter accounts. RPs where it's just like, mm-hmm. this is me RPing as Olivia Rodrigo. Yeah. My favorite is when people do it for a TV show. This was like big on Tumblr and it has since moved over to Twitter, but it still exists on Tumblr mm-hmm. where people would be like, we're doing a Glee role play. Um, Rachel Berry and Kurt Hummel are already taken. We really need a Quinn for Bray. So if you would like to role play as her, um, please reply to this email. Yeah. <laughs> like that kind of stuff where it's like, we already have these characters. We need other characters. Was, we need someone to role play as this person. <laughs> I was talking about this with somebody the other day where, um, do you, you know the fake Tim Curry account that occasionally pops off, right? And yeah, goes viral. It's really and funny. Like, Man, look at Tim Curry just sitting at home in his wheelchair, just roasting people on Twitter. And the at of that is not Tim Curry. Yeah, people don't And it don't says in the bio that it's not really Tim Curry. People, they, but he has like 80,000 followers. They want that reality to be real, so they don't care. Yeah. That's what it is. I wanted Buff Bagwell to be tweeting out, what's bussy? Yeah, I but did But that too. wasn't really Buff Bagwell, and it was very sad. <laughs> We're just talking about wrestling, weirdly enough, in the Perfect Blue episode more than any other episode we've ever done. I mean, it makes sense, though. Yes, but uh, Mima becomes very interested in this this, this casual role-playing blog about her. 
which I feel like morbid curiosity. Yeah, there's it's, morbid curiosity. We we have no preconceived notion of what how how negatively this can go. Mm-hmm. So it's like novel. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. She has no reason to be scared yet because we don't know how scary the internet is yet. Yeah, it's we're in the early, we're in the late nineties. Like so, social media doesn't really exist yet. Like forums mm-hmm. are there, chat rooms are there, but like the way that it is now, that doesn't exist yet. So there this has, is still there's no hub for fandoms yet. Yeah, this is still kind of novel. Um and. In hindsight, looking at this, all, like all of us are like red flag, red flag, red flag. This is really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time period, like it was something kind of nice. It's how I think you can tell based on like when a celebrity became famous, like how their relationship is with social media or fandom. Sure. Because you'll have people who have been around for a very long time that are like, oh, I absolutely read the fan fiction people write about me. I think it's hilarious. Okay. And then you'll have somebody who's like really young who has been around for the internet and they're like, I read literally nothing on the internet. I have people that do that for me because I, I don't want to know mm-hmm. because they know how bad it is. Yeah. And that's all they've known is how bad it is. Um, whereas people who you know have been famous for a very long time, either pre-internet or like early internet, it, it still has like a little bit of that charm to it. Oh yeah. Because they've been able to be distanced from it. Whereas young people before they got famous, they were aware of the internet and how toxic it could be for just regular people. Dude, we do it for entertainment where like Jimmy Kimmel makes celebrities read mean tweets. And it's always very obvious how somebody feels about their relationship with the internet because you'll get somebody like like a Hugh Jackman or whatever who will read a tweet and laugh his ass off and be like, that's super funny. And then you'll get somebody younger and they take it like, like okay, really man, personal <laughs> and they get really upset about it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Or, you know, that's just also a great way to see like who's insecure and who's not. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this also ties into Mima's not real... Not really knowing who she is mm-hmm. and wanting to be famous for something. Like, someone's taking a vested interest in her. Mm-hmm. It makes her feel like she's got some level of, like, celebrity that's cool. If she's having a bad day, she just goes, well, let's see if you had a better day than me. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of, like, I don't know, ambiguity of just, like, maybe living vicariously through this version of her that isn't real, that apparently is enjoying their life more than she is. Mm-hmm. And that is a whole other now complicated layer of who you are as a person being added to this movie. (laughs) This is going to be a weird connection because this person, as we know, is like an extremely controversial and problematic figure. But whenever she does that, where she like checks the website of like the life she is supposedly living, I can't help but think about when Shia LaBeouf watched all of his movies in a theater. Oh, and he fell asleep. And like some some of them he fell asleep, (laughs) but some of them he like broke down and cried. And some Mm -hmm. of them he was so delighted about. Yeah. And it's this thing where it's like when you've been in the public eye for that long, it does do something to you. Well, I mean, on the inverse, like... Adam Driver doesn't watch any of his movies. Yeah, he like outright he refuses to. And he's left talk shows where people have been like, hey, let's look at this footage. And he's like, no. And mm-hmm. he'll get up and leave because he doesn't want to see it. Yeah. And because again, like this this idea of being consumed by other people or how you're perceived and how you kind of don't have control over that perception is really scary. And like once you let that existential like thought overtake you, it's terrifying. I am in no way at the level of some of these people, but I've been online for a very long time. I've been available for public consumption for a very long time, and it has sincerely fucked me up. Like, 
I am so weird with my real life interpersonal relationships and what I'm willing to tell people and what I'm willing to let people see of me because, you know, 15 years of my life have been readily consumed by other people without my consent. I don't know how people view me. I have no control over that. I try to. I try to put my best foot forward. And then that backfires because people think they know me and they think they know what's going on. Like I tweeted something about like how you and I were going to like go see a movie or whatever. And I got somebody that was like, um, aren't you still like COVID contagious? That's super fucked up. And it's like, no, dude. Like, are you my doctor? Did you have a conversation with that my was doctor? Like a month today? ago, right? That was so long ago. What are you doing? But like, Instead, people, you're just dealing with general exhaustion now. <laughs> yeah, now I just I because I probably have long COVID. Um, you won't know that for a couple more months. Yeah, I just I would love to not be tired all the time. Um, but like that, like that's a thing. And so then you think about it on the level of celebrities, where it is millions of people who do this. Mm-hmm. I don't know how anybody gets through that. I don't know, man. It, the obsessiveness is strange to me because I don't feel like I, as a person who is a fan of many, many things, um, I, I really like pro wrestling. We brought that up a lot today. I love Jim Steinman. I love John Woo. I love a lot of things that I'm really passionate about and maybe talk about a little too much. But I don't feel like I am capable of loving anything as much as people love certain things where they are like full on stan culture where they are full on like me mania. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm capable of loving anything so singularly like that. I saw a man driving a Jeep the other day and he had like eight different Mandalorian stickers and a bunch of baby Yodas on it and stuff like that. Oh, I know it's Grogu, but like, I'm like, I don't think I love anything as much as this man loves the Mandalorian apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this isn't to like, shade on stan culture or anything like my sister's a huge bts stan like i know she went to korea to do bts stuff i think you're just i feel like there's just some level of being built differently mm-hmm. we're like i don't know we just did that episode on on taylor swift and like we mostly were talking about the numbers of it but i don't love anything enough to even be a part of a fandom with a name like mm-hmm. I've, I've i've never loved anything enough to be a part of the beehive mm-hmm. or to be a barb or, or a, a swifty just I'm not mm-hmm. and I, I'm just not built that way. And I, I don't think it's inherently a bad thing, but there needs to be some level of cognizance that you have as a fan with the thing you're a fan of. Yes. I think that's really where it like you go too far. Yeah. That's where the disconnect happens. Um, because when you have this character like me mania, like he's specifically fixated on Mima as the pop idol. And it's to the point where when she makes the transition into acting and it is intense material. It's decidedly not um, innocent and pure. No. So like, she's like he wants her to. She's be. on a show called Double Bind, which is also like playing with like double identity. Like it's 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 very, um I don't know, like CSI, very SVU, just an Amer- American drama, but it's a Japanese drama. And what's funny, too, is that this being the show that she gets on is like this world's version of like teen movies where the lesson that they're going to learn is something that they're also learning about in class of like, oh, we're going to read Shakespeare's As You Like It and Never Been Kissed. And they just both happen to be about people in disguises. (laughs) Well, I mean, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy, though, that she's internalizing like aspects of her role and that's shaping her worldview on things? Yes. Because she has no identity of her own. Yes. So in this show, there is um, a very 
powerful moment. This is the moment that Satoshi Khan says that he regrets including. I I disagree with him wholeheartedly. I mm-hmm. think that this is so vital. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of Mima's role on this new TV show is that she gets raped by a group of men. By, by one man while a bunch of men in the strip club very Eagerly. enthusiastically cheer him on. Yes, and... I think that it's incredibly important for two reasons. One, there's the symbolic reason of like, this is kind of how we treat so many women in celebrity is like, they are- We will fuck you. We will have our way with you. Like Deal with it. And people will look on and cheer for it. Uh Like, so symbolically, I think that's very important because after this scene, like we later see her wearing black and it very much feels like a funeral for the life that she Mm -hmm. used to have. So like from a symbolic storytelling standpoint, I think it's very, very important. But what I think is more important than anything is the way that it is depicted as being something that takes place on a set mm-hmm. where like in between they have to cut. They have to they have cut. To, okay, reset the shot. Uh-huh. Like and that the guy happens. who's on top is like, I'm really sorry about this. Yeah. Like, like he's, he does not want to do it, but she's like, no, it's cool. Like it's not like you're actually raping me or anything. Right. Like it's like so wild to see because I think people forget this is how this kind of art is made. Well, yes, because you've you've written for years mm-hmm. about like rape revenge films. My most... first professional published piece in a book is defending the movie I spit on your grave. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You've written about that movie in particular a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that especially people who are not accustomed to things like that, like I don't, we don't have a lot of, a lot of rape scenes on our show. It's just not a thing that comes up very often. And if it is, it's off screen or it's implied or it's yeah. something that happened in the past. Yeah. yeah. We don't have actual scenes of it. Um, but it is a thing that happens in in an entire subgenre. And I think if you're not prepared for it, you don't know how to fully process having mm-hmm. it be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think of like, you know, how Sam Raimi also doesn't want to necessarily include the uh, the tree scene in Evil Dead mm-hmm. where he's like, oh, maybe, maybe we didn't didn't need that. Mm-hmm. Or like um, Kevin Smith's like, maybe we didn't need to have her have sex with that dead guy mm-hmm. in Clerks. I don't know. Um I don't know if those are necessary for their films. It feels like sensationalizing something for either, you know, graphicness in Evil Dead's case or comedy for clerks. But it is so vital to this movie, despite it not being of like the rape revenge genre where it is a central part of the movie. Mm -hmm. This is this is a central part of this movie. Yeah, uh, I think it is probably the most important scene in this movie save for like the opening and the climax. Like this is such a necessary part. And I know that this is also an extremely hard scene for people to watch, not only just because of the content, because that's always going to be very triggering content for Mm -hmm. a lot of people, but specifically because it's animated, which means it's in a format that a lot of people either don't see this sort of material in this format, this medium, or they have two associations with it. Either A, hentai, mm-hmm. which is like in and of itself a very taboo thing a lot of people think is weird. Or they have yet to break the connotation they have in their brain of animation being for children. Mm-hmm. And so then they see an animated rape sequence and it breaks something in their brain because they're like, no, this is children, no. And like it 
a lot of wires get crossed in your brain and you kind of short circuit a little bit. Yeah. Um, this is such a challenging scene and it is so fucking important. And I say that as somebody from my own personal experience, I am not ever going to speak on behalf of all survivors. Y'all can listen to our episode on Promising Young Woman if you really want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but I personally find this scene to be absolutely vital. I agree. Now, let's unpack what's happening before and after this scene. Mm -hmm. So initially when she pivots to acting, she has um, one scene with three cuts and a single line. You know, everyone's dream. Everyone's <laughs> dream. So this guy that I assume is like her agent is like, cool. Um, hey, you know, screenwriter, can you like give her give her more to do, like a little more substantial? Like she's giving up her career to be on your show. And like you really need to like kind of kind of zhuzh this up a little bit, like give her a little meat. And this guy legitimately has this reaction of like, OK, I'm going to fuck her up then. Yeah. Like very like spitefully being like, oh, I'm going to write her something and like this will be good. But like I'm thinking of going more intense with it. Mm -hmm. just to really stick it to her and the 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 before this like there's also a scene where she gets a, a fan mail and her agent opens it up and it explodes in his hand and it's like next time it won't be a warning mm -hmm. and that's also like the precursor to like crazy fandom but after this that's how we get to the uh the parking garage scene mm -hmm. and the screenwriter writes this thing that is an important character arc for this character on the show where it's like she's going to develop a split personality as a result of this one incident. Mm -hmm. It's it's very sucker punch, honestly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you're, you're not wrong. And also it is the 90s. So this was like pretty common where it was like give a woman a traumatic experience and how is she going to have a defense mechanism? Split personality. Exactly. Like, again, we're not here to diagnose anybody. This is not how well, that works. This, this is also like, you know, just the hacky TV writing of the 90s. Yeah. Like, it's just a thing. It's hacky TV writing. Yeah, it's just yeah, like, yeah. We need drama. We got to raise the stakes. It's very soap. <laughs> that's Yes, of course. So you have that going on. Um, and that's when we get to the scene with Parking Garage where he hears this noise and it's really ominous and like we're getting these really far away shots. Like we're observing him from like behind cars and like the shadows and he calls the elevator and comes down as like a tiny boom box that is just blasting this Japanese pop song very loudly and then boom cut to the elevator opening. And this man is dead on the floor with his eyes missing. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And it is like such a classic like horror movie shot too of like elevator comes down doors open just carnage on the inside. Yeah. Um, Oh, it's brilliant. Like it's, like, it's so fucked up. It's so brilliant. Yes. So I want to, I want to make a, a comparison that we that we alluded to earlier. And uh, th this screenwriter, like he's making some big swings that are really unrealistic. He's writing suffering just to make people suffer. Mm -hmm. He's just like, oh, you wanted her to more to do? Okay, I'm going to punish you for questioning my vision. <laughs> Let's get her literally fucked. Um, it feels like Darren Aronofsky did not pick up on things. Like, he doesn't understand how to put humanity into his suffering. He just likes to rinse and repeat basic trope formats but it's like is he a, a deadbeat dad with, who's struggling to have relationships with his daughter and he's a piece of shit well is he a wrestler or is he a big fat guy mm. okay Darren's just fucking filling in his trauma porn mad lib because he didn't learn how humanity works from his favorite movie here's okay we're gonna we're gonna open this can of worms so Darren Aronofsky at one point 
had the rights to Perfect Blue because he wanted to use a shot from it, which is her in the bathtub mm-hmm. in Requiem for a Dream. And that scene does exist. He, it is a shot-for-shot recreation of a scene from Perfect Blue in Requiem for a Dream. And yet, he then makes Black Swan, which might as well just be Perfect Blue, mm-hmm. but with a ballerina. Yep, It is uncanny how similar this movie is to Perfect Blue. And yet if you ask him, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And it's like, motherfucker, you had the legal rights to this movie. Please don't play brand new. We're not stupid here. I do not care for this man. I do not care for this man and his bullshit. So I was already very much like "Mm," about Aronofsky once I learned that. But where I completely got off the train was with both The Wrestler and The Whale, both movies where he is trying to convince his audience to like feel empathy through suffering, but there is no humanity to be found. It is just trauma porn. You should pity this character. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You shouldn't be rooting for them. You should feel sorry for them. I'm going to make you feel so bad by just putting so much fucking terrible feelings and suffering on the screen. Like exploitively. Yes. Fuck you. Yeah. It's like exploitively depressing stuff. And then the audience feels like they've done a good because they recognized bad how bad it was. I felt so bad for Brendan Fraser in that movie. I think you know, fat people do deserve to be treated like human beings. By the way, have you tried Ozempic, you fat fuck? Yeah. Like, ugh, I, I can't handle I it. I don't care for him. I mean, in general, I'm very grouchy of filmmakers ripping off um, Asian cinema, especially like animated movies. It, yeah, it's bothersome. Like, really ca- like it's cool when you do the Akira slide because it's just like, I mean, it's the because Akira. it's the Akira yeah, slide. You do that. In nope. It's fucking sick. Yeah. But then you have like the Wachowskis ripping off like Ghost in the Shell and just being like, no, we're just big fans of anime. And it's like you owe so much of your career to stuff that other people did. Yeah. And it's like to the point where it's like it, it's fine if you just pay homage to it like Tarantino does it. But he also owns up to he it. He owns is up the to thing. it. Aronofsky <laughs> doesn't own up to it. Like that's the, why I'm mad at him. And that's the thing is like there, there are so many filmmakers that borrow from the the filmmakers that they love. Yeah, your favorite movies. Yeah, Ab- I would absolutely be putting things from just, my favorite movies. Just in my acknowledge movies that I make. it because like when there were interviews where people would ask Jordan Peele about the Akira slide and Nope, and you just watch him light up and he's like. I can't believe I got to do that. It is the coolest thing I've ever done. Oh my God. Like he's so excited about it. Or with Tarantino, like there are plenty of critiques to make about him. This is not a pro Tarantino rant, but like if you ask him like, okay, so kill Bill, what was the inspiration here? He'd be like, have you seen lady snowball? Let's talk about it. And he'll mm-hmm. get really hype about it. Yes. But then you have Aronofsky who straight up legally owned the rights to this movie. And when you're like, wow, there's a lot of similarities between black Swan and perfect blue. He plays dumb. Of course. Fuck you, man. Just be like, yeah, Satoshi Khan's a genius. Hey, Americans. I wanted to bring it to live action. That's li- it's so easy to do that. Hey, Americans, you've never heard of this movie, but guess what? What if I made it sexier and lesbians? Right. You're going to love it. But yes. <laughs> right. And it's just, it's doubly frustrating because the theme of this movie is about like taking over someone's identity. Stolen identity. Stolen identity. You learned nothing from this movie. Yeah. And I'm just like, how did you miss the point so bad? Like, how did you miss it so bad? Uh, yeah, it makes me a little, makes me a little me mania about it. Um, I'm just going to go gouge someone's eyes out out of just, just, how dare you take this thing that I love and taint it? So, yes. <laughs> because that's what it is. That's what me mania is doing is it's like, oh, the, the, this photographer who's like getting a little too sleazy and a little too fresh. He's notorious for getting girls to take their clothes off when he 
photographs him. It's like, you shouldn't be able to see her. She's mine. She's my pure, perfect idol. You shouldn't be filming her getting assaulted by men who are doing just doing their jobs because, as actors. Okay, because that's the other thing with pop idols and where it does connect a little bit into Disney is that the, the chaste and mm-hmm. the purity that is like a big thing. Like idols are not allowed to have romantic relationships because yep. they specifically want fans to feel like they have a chance, mm-hmm. even though that's never going to happen in a million years. No, of course not. But you but need you that like fantasy. the illusion of it. You need the fantasy. Um, related but not. But if you read um, Elvira's autobiography, which is absolutely phenomenal, she talks about how one of the reasons why it took her so long to come out was because she fully understood that a big core part of her fan base were men who enjoyed the fantasy of possibly being able to be with Elvira. And if she came out as like, hey, I've been in this lesbian relationship for a decade, that kills that fantasy. Mm -hmm. And like, that makes me so sad and so angry because that's also kind of like what put me back into the closet was knowing like, oh, I'm a woman working in a geek space. Part of the appeal that I have is that men think they have a shot. And Mm -hmm. like, I hate that that's the world that we live in, but that's the world that we live in. And until we acknowledge that, it's never gonna change. Yes. Like um, that, that's very what, frustrating. That's what the murders just keep happening. Like he, we don't know it at the time, but we find out that Mimania is a pawn. Yes, and he's specifically taking people's eyes out. Yes, and it's because you saw something you shouldn't have. I eyes are the gateway to the soul, and you have seen sins that you shouldn't see. Yes, um, but it is after the elevator kill that Mima kind of has to reckon with what's going on because it's people close to her are dying. Mm -hmm. And then there's a little bit of internalized, you know, terror about that of like, this is clearly me. Well, yeah, it's it's orbiting you. What's the connective tissue here? It's like, well, if one thing happens, it's like, oh, wow, that's unfortunate. But it's like, oh, this is becoming recurring. It's a pattern now. Yeah, it's no longer a coincidence. all have in common? Yes. They've worked with me. Yes. And so that is awful because you feel responsible for all of this, which she is not. Like, she's not responsible for this. Somebody who is very unhinged and doesn't understand the difference between fantasy and reality, it's their fault for Mm -hmm. being unwell. And, like, that's not to be, like, you know, mental health blamey or whatever, but, like, no, this is a person who needs help and is not seeking it out. Mm-hmm. is not getting it and mm-hmm. that's a problem i can't speak for mental health in japan but we certainly don't have good mental health in this country we sure as fuck do not <laughs> um, and, and and mind you as far as like regrets and having to commit to your decisions are concerned uh as she's like her career is sort of taking off like you know as far as everyone on set is concerned like she's kind of losing reality and saying the wrong lines and getting startled by maybe a man who's there or maybe he's just you know a paranoid illusion She's mostly good. Like, this is a good thing for her career. Mm-hmm. But she's full of immense regret, especially because the two remaining women of Cham are now getting a top single. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, um, this ties into what we talked about last month on the Musical Milestones episode. It's a Eurodance song. <laughs> It's a thumping Eurodance song and not this cutesy Japanese pop song. Yeah. <laughs> which is awesome. Um, so there is an article about Perfect Blue that was written at Bloody Disgusting by uh, Paul Lay that I really, really liked. And I like Paul. I like Paul's work so much. Um, but in it, uh, Paul writes about the confrontation that Mima finally has with Mimania. And it says, the time comes when Mima is forced to face her fears head on. After Mima's drama Double Bind wraps, she is caught off guard by Mimania in the same place where the idol part of herself essentially died. 
the rape scene. Mm-hmm. Me Mania is prepared to kill the so-called imposter so that the quote-unquote real Mima can live because he's fully convinced that this Mima that's acting is an imposter and not actually her because... The one who runs the blog yes. is more in line with like his mindset. Exactly. The one that keeps screaming, help me, help me, help me on the blog. Yes. He's like, oh, I'll help you. I'll be your white knight. The idol Mima is who he thinks is real. Um, so by now, Perfect Blue has gone to considerable lengths to illustrate Mima's severe identity crisis, but Mimania is the most blatant manifestation. He embodies all of her doubts and paranoia. When it looks as if Mimania will succeed, Mima takes back control of the situation. As gratifying as it is to see her prevail after being tormented from all sides, Mima is not out of the woods yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yoshikazu uh, Takeuchi kept it, that's the writer of the book material. He kept his book's ending uncomplicated by having just one villain. Surprise. However, the film presents a game changer shortly after Mima escapes Mimania's attack. Using the otaku as a red herring, Perfect Blue draws attention away from the actual killer because someone close to Mima has developed a vicarious relationship with her. They fed on the nostalgia while also over-identifying. Watching Mima then willingly give up something they crave only led to a tremendous break in reality. The escalating violence, the body count, and the killer's one-by-one method all naturally invite comparisons to slashers and giallo films. Like the more meditative examples of those subgenres, Perfect Blue avoids indiscriminate murders and easy-to-digest motivations. Mm-hmm. It's, oh my god. So, that hallway scene... She doesn't run away because I think she's convinced either he's not going to make a move. I've seen him a million times and he never does anything mm-hmm. or he's not real mm-hmm. and he's just an illusion. Oh, no, he's real this time. Mm-hmm. Was he real every other time? Mm, but he's yeah. definitely real this time. Yeah. And oh, my God, like the reveal when she wakes back up in this apartment. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It's, it's got these little details where you're like, huh. And like in a different thing, it'd be like, oh, maybe it's an animation error or whatever. But like, no, you, if you pay attention to the details, you're on it because mm-hmm. she just wakes up. And sometimes like it was a dream. Sometimes it was on set. Who knows what happened? Like the reality is popping off weird. But earlier in the movie, her fish die. Mm-hmm. And you're looking back and go, the fish are alive. Uh-huh. The fish are alive. Why are the fish alive? And then she notices them and then opens the window. And if you notice the skyline, it's different now. And she goes. This isn't my apartment, but it's designed to look exactly like my apartment. This is not my beautiful wife. No, <laughs> but that reveal is so good. It is pretty it is, brilliant. It's so fucking good, especially because there's been so many of these, like, I don't want to call them fake outs, but there's been so many of these instances of her just waking up in her apartment after a horrific thing happened mm-hmm. that may not have actually happened. Mm-hmm. And then this time it's like, oh no, you're actually in danger and you're not in your apartment. It's yes. brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So where does, where does she wake up, Harmony? Oh, she's she's in she's in Rumi's Rumi's house. She's in don't, manager Rumi's house. Who don't has, get a Rumi. Don't, don't get a Rumi. She is in Rumi's house and Rumi has redecorated her entire apartment to look exactly like Mima's room. Specifically like Mima's room before she completely gave up being a pop idol because there's mm-hmm. still posters of her former group up. The fish are still alive. Mm -hmm. It's a specific moment in time when you are exactly who I wanted you to be. Mm -hmm. And she comes out and like we get this facade where it like this is where the animation truly shines of it. Like all the mirror work, the mirror work in this. The best way that I can describe it is the way that people were like blown away by the mirror work in the new Candyman and Nia Dacosta's Candyman. I would bet money that it's inspired by the mirror work in Perfect Blue. It's so good. It's so unbelievable. Because, like, we've been getting little illusions of, like, the pop star Mima, like, dancing out and just being an um, ominous specter of her past. But this time it's like, oh, no, she's real. 
and she like waffles back and forth between Rumi and her. Like at one point she's like trying to kill her on the ground and uh, Mima starts to choke her and her face like contorts back into reality. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Like, okay. So there's something that could be probably be made for this with one of the mirror works where they're having the chase scene and it's like so elegant and beautiful and threatening mm-hmm. as she just like kind of, prances around and like bounds five feet at a time with a single toe. And she's just, just this she almost beautiful. Floats. Yeah. She's this beautiful, like fairy. She's a sky dancer. Mm-hmm. She's a fucking sky dancer. That's out to kill you. Yeah. And there's a mirror work where you see that like, yes, it looks like this version is just grace and elegance and menace personified. But Rumi is actually like panting and wheezing and looks like an absolute slobbering, like a mess. She looks like when animation does like wild boars. Yes. Like that's what she looks like. Which like, I'm sure there's something that could be said about like, oh yeah, well she's, you know, a, a fat slob. Or... Yeah, it's the repulsion of fatness. Yes. Like it, again, it's the 90s. It's that, but also I think it says more about like the intentions of that is about her being just older mm-hmm. and past her prime. You're not, you're not small and you're not, not a young girl anymore. Mm-hmm. You, you've developed into like a, a normal middle-aged woman and you can't handle it. She's re- she's refused to accept that she is no longer the pop idol and she has entered a new phase in her life. She's unwilling to let it go, so she's been living vicariously through Mima, very similarly to the way that like you see obsessive pageant moms mm-hmm. or like the moms who would kill to get their daughters on cheerleading squads. Mm-hmm. They're living through their children and obviously Rumi doesn't have children, so she's living through her client. Yes. Because my client is having the life that I once had that I wish I still had. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep her in that position. Like, Including, you know, her own version of Psycho where she dresses up in her clothes and tries to kill her. Yes. And so they have a, a version of her clothes. Right. It's like her pop idol dress similar. Um, but what is really interesting and something that I love is they do finally have this big confrontation and Mima pulls Rumi's wig off and it's revealed like she's got like her short like mom hair her normal hair she has her normal hair yeah, her practical hair. and that you know breaks kind of the facade for Rumi and she panics and she needs to get that wig and what she ends up doing is essentially killing herself she is committing so hard to this identity that she leans over broken glass and mirror and it punctures her and she doesn't care. Mm-hmm. She is so fixated on getting that wig and putting it back on that she is not paying attention to the actual danger she's in because that's not important to her. What's important to her is putting the wig back on and keeping that disguise. That Real- fantasy. Reality is unpleasant, but fantasy. Yes. Oh. She, she's not in reality. She's in no. fantasy. No. And this is where she like ends up wandering into the street and we get the shot, mm-hmm. the shot with the blood in the dress. And she looks so beautiful and there's blood everywhere. There's blood everywhere. There's and it's so good. And a truck comes. The truck doesn't seem to make any effort to slow down, but apparently they do. Mm-hmm. And she just sees the lights and it's like, Oh, I'm a star spotlights and just throws her arms out and is fully about to just get run down. It very much is like, it's the end of black Swan. It's like, I was perfect. Like the end of black Swan, more like the end of perfect blue. Like that's what it is though. Like that's why it gets so mad when he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, shut the fuck up. Aronofsky. Yes, Mm -hmm. you do. Um, But even in that moment, like Mima puts her own self at risk to try to push her out of the way of the truck because Mima, like this is when we're starting to see who Mima really is. She is an empathetic person that even though Rumi has caused her 
nothing but pain and has been killing people close to her by using me mania. She still tries to save her. I mean, they also have a history. Because they have a history and like she's a good person. Mm -hmm. And this is when Mima is even saying things like, I'm real. Like she has finally gotten to the point where she understands who she is, what she wants, and what her identity is outside of how the rest of the world perceives her. Mm -hmm. And like, like this is a coming of age story where she doesn't reach that point until like the very end. And it is forged through a massacre basically like she she visits Rumi at what I assume is like a mental hospital um Mm -hmm. and occasionally Rumi comes back but like no she's pretty much fully committed to living as this fantasy version of Mima here and um yeah yeah that that's that's kind of where the movie ends she drives away and is like well I guess this is the rest of my life now yeah and uh as this bloody disgusting article says as suffocatingly bleak as Perfect Blue gets, Con left viewers with a glimmer of light. Mima's ordeal was, in a word, nightmarish, and not a lot of people would come out of that unscathed. This new venture began with Mima doubting and loathing herself. Looking into mirrors was near impossible without succumbing to constantly ill feelings. Mima clearly had the talent to do whatever she pleased, although massive insecurities on top of others' underestimation held her back. Later on, as Mima visits her assailant in a psychiatric hospital, they each gaze into different mirrors, looking at distinct reflections. The deuteragonist remains trapped in their desired image while Mima is grateful to see only herself. No, I'm real, she says in the film's last few seconds, indicating that she now believes in herself. This confidence is what finally ends the overlapping of reality and fantasy. Mm -hmm. I love that so very much. And... I feel like this is one of these films that doesn't get talked about when we talk about the hell is a teenage girl canon. Yes. Right? And we absolutely should because while Mima is supposed to be like in her twenties. I don't, I'm not fully convinced she is. That's like, like I'm not convinced she is she, either. She was in Cham for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And if she's in her twenties, that meant she started being a pop idol in like her twenties. That's something you right. generally start in your teens. So at most, right. she's maybe 21. That's kind of how I've always read her as well. And I, it's so hard for me not to view her as somebody like a Miley Cyrus, somebody who was consumed so much as a teenager and then had to do something like really rebellious and then later settled into like, well, this is who I really Eventually am. Eventually the dust settles. Eventually the dust settles because you, I look at the Miley's, I look at the Britney's, I look at the Christina Aguilera's of the world. And so many of them have this similar trajectory of like the squeaky clean bubblegum appearance. And then to break that mold, they go really hard in one, in one extreme direction. Mm-hmm. And then they, chill out and then they finally take ownership of like who they are and what and what they want the world to see and this is who i am take it or leave it and to see that reflected so beautifully in perfect blue like and i also don't think that you have to be like a celebrity or a pop star or something like that for this sort of thing to resonate with you no not at all because it's just, like it's just a really compelling story it's a compelling story but also like so many of us we have to exist in a world where people do make assumptions on who you are as a person based on surface level information, based on your Instagram account, based on an exchange that you had at the grocery store when your coupon wasn't working. Like people who don't know you and will never actually get to know you will make assumptions of who you are as a person 
in those very small moments mm-hmm. and treat you based on that immediate assumption. Mm-hmm. This is why I struggle so much with like TikTok because people think they know, well, this is front facing. I see your videos. I know who you are. And it's like, but you don't. And like none of us do. And we treat each other as if we do, as if we have this like intimate relationship. BJ, and we're Twitter mutuals. Y- yes. Like I've no, no exaggeration. There was an issue that I dealt with on a film project where somebody was being very toxic and harmful to another person over Twitter. Like they were just acting horribly. They were being racist. They were just, it it was awful. It was a bad situation. And when we explained, hey, what you're doing is not okay. You cannot antagonize this person this way. You cannot talk to them this way. Their response was, but we're Twitter mutuals. We know each other. And it's like, no, you don't don't like you've never been in the same time zone as this person you don't know this person Mm -hmm. and it's it's like so existentially terrifying for me because this sort of perfect blue story this sort of behavior this sort of story it used to be isolated to celebrities and people that were like super famous that's not happening anymore because now with social media anybody can be this person. The I've had, changed everything. I've man. had people follow me around conventions being like, I love your blog, but not in like the cute knives chow kind of way, but in the like, I'm very scary kind of way. Mm-hmm. And the difference being is that now the people this is happening to, because like, oh, you have a good following on TikTok or whatever, they don't have celebrity security. They don't have a team of handlers. Mm -hmm. They don't like they're listed in the fucking phone books. Like you can look up people's addresses because you don't have the security teams to take all that stuff down to keep you safe. Mm -hmm. That shit is so fucking scary. And we're seeing it happen more and more with regular people. And it's starting to happen younger and younger because so many people are like, I'm going to be a mommy blogger. Here's my kids growing up. Oh, no, we're doing potty training. Like, why the fuck are you putting that on the Internet? Mm-hmm. Because then it's normalizing it. So then by the time kids are 10 years old, you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, I want to be a Twitch streamer. I want to be an influencer. That's what I want to be when I grow up. They're 10 years old. And they're like, I want the whole world to see my face and consume me. And they have no concept of like how dangerous that life is and well, yeah. how people respond to this that's, sort of thing. That's what being an idol is. That's how they get you. Exactly. Like, oh, you're going to live your dreams. Yeah. Right? Going to going to make all your dreams come true. Because some idols, they start training them when they're like 9 or younger when I they're, think even. They're like yeah. they're babies and it's just like fuck, man. Like how is this the world that we live in? How did how did we get this? Why haven't we stopped this? Yeah. I know that I sound like tinfoil hat like old person like ah, the youths of today, but like nah, shit's Not dangerous. No, it's it's full ass adults who are it's in charge everybody. of that. It's everybody. It's Ad- everybody. Adults run the, the 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 things that make pop idols. I know. The, 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 whatever the Japanese Simon Cowell equivalent is, <laughs> you know. That that that's a full ass adult thing. Um I think just like the lesson to learn with this is like, you know, know your boundaries. Know your boundaries. You're, you're not you're not that sometimes you're not that close of friends with some people. But also sometimes uh you just need to have some distance with the things that you're a fan of. Don't don't be weird to the people that you like. 
but also know yourself. Yeah. Know yourself. That's, know who that's, you are. That's really the biggest takeaway of this. Like it's because it's all about identity. It's it's identity and and positionality. Like be aware of those things. Mm-hmm. And on that delightful note. Let's, let's pull your social media. <laughs> Perfect Blue is asking you to the to the prom. Is it a yes, no, maybe? Or are you buying her a ticket so she can go on her own? No, it's a yes. Like I assume. This is one of those movies that is such a masterpiece. It's arguably the best animated movie ever made. Um, I, 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 would, I, I won't die on that hill, but I would be willing to defend it for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's just so fucking good. And it, it elevates what animation can do to such an intense degree that it transcends anime and animation, obviously, because people like Black Swan a lot. It's, it's just so good. And I think there's a lot of things you can take away from it. And Satoshi Khan is a fucking genius, and I miss him. Same. Big same. Well, Prom Party, thank you so much for listening to this episode. What an episode it was. I know. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Blue Sky at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocit underscore trap underscore tour, or at Blue Sky at my name, Harmony Colangelo. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what cool band do you want people to check out this week inspired by Perfect Blue? What an honor for whoever this is. Right? Uh, so the band I'm shouting out is, I, I, I guess, it's a color band. It's Perfect Blue. Well, we're going to get black and blue because it's Black Dresses. Ooh, beautiful. Um, black Dresses is a, a, a very loud electronic rock band. A lot of noise rock. But like actually do know how to like structure songs, which is something that I can't say for a lot of noise music, which is why I'm not the most versed in the genre. But black dresses are super good. Um, they're a trans band. They sing about big feelings and anger and sadness and also like are funny at the same time, which is cool. I love that. And um, if you've been following them for a little bit, you might know that they disappeared for a while because of obsessive fans. Mm, so love that. There, there, there's, there's a couple different tie-ins about expression and big feelings and that for why they're a perfect plug for this episode. <laughs> All right, that is black dresses. Well, that takes us out. We will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Okay, bye. The next one will be way lighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.